have people who listen to my podcast with us. Thank you guys for, for driving down here. It's, uh, it's really an honor for me. I, it's very humbling for me, actually, uh, that you guys, you guys would join us. So thank you. Um, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter uh, 28. Uh, the bulk of our text is going to be in Luke chapter 14, so you might want to put one finger there and uh, with, with the rest of your hand flip over to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, while you guys are getting there, just a reminder, we're, we're just doing a quick two-part mini-series here for the next couple weeks. Uh, we're going to be starting Judges two weeks from today. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about uh, abiding in Christ and the fruit of true discipleship. Today, we're talking about the costs and conditions of, uh, of discipleship. And, and this is just one of those issues that as a church, as, as a pastor, I feel like, you know, I've, I've got to go back to and back to and revisit it over and over again because discipleship is the very reason that we exist. It's why we're here. It's why this building is here. It's why we're all gathered today. It's all about discipleship. Discipleship is at the heart. It's at the heart of the Great Commission. You know, we, um, I think we, we have a tendency to think that the Great Commission is about going overseas on missions or, or maybe even just supporting those who do. Um, but really, that's, that's evangelism, uh, which is very different from discipleship. And I would say that the mature disciple will evangelize naturally. Uh, evangelism, you may even say, is part of the discipleship process, but evangelism and discipleship are two very different things, two distinct things. Evangelism might be likened to the motor in, in a huge boat, uh, in, in that it propels the, the ship of discipleship forward, but none of us would uh, even be tempted to confuse the motor with the ship itself, right? In fact, uh, what happens if you put a boat out on the water? It just sits there. What happens if you put a motor out on the water? Uh, it sinks to the bottom, right? So we know uh, they are not the same thing. And so similarly, discipleship and evangelism might be part of the same ship, but they are two totally different things. Uh, as Jesus was preparing to ascend to heaven after spending 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection, he gave what we call the Great Commission, uh, which starts with an under, understanding of who has the authority to direct our paths. And so he starts out, uh, if you look down at verse, uh, verse 19 in chapter 28 of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in other words, he's saying this is, this is the foundation of exactly what I'm about to tell you. This is the, the, the foundation. This is what it's going to be built on. This is my authority. Everything is under my authority. And so then he says, go therefore, therefore meaning in light of this authority, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How do we make disciples? How does that work? Well, Jesus says, he says, by baptizing him, that's, that's kind of, kind of the, the, the first step in, in the discipleship process. So we, we baptize them and by teaching them. What are we to teach them? We're to, to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. In other words, we're supposed to teach people uh, and one another to be obedient to Jesus. The Greek word that gets translated as observe normally means 
uh, to keep or uh, to guard or to hold fast to something. And so we have to be taught what it means to be obedient to Jesus, which means growing in personal holiness. That's what obedience is all about. Holiness. If we're going to take our mission to make disciples seriously it's the only thing that we've been called to do so my opinion is if there's only one thing that you've been given to do you take that one thing pretty seriously especially when all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to the person who gave it to us so uh, we take this very seriously but the next question might be what is a disciple is it just somebody who goes to church is it somebody who just gives intellectual assent to to Jesus? Is it somebody who just believes in Jesus or is it something more? In a nutshell, you know, we're we're called to follow Jesus. And what that means is to to grow in his likeness, to grow in our our Christ-likeness. That's what we're called to do. That's what discipleship is all about. We're called to work together as a community, not as individuals, but as a community toward this goal. Uh, The term disciple is actually interchangeable with the term Christian. So when you hear the term Christian, think disciple. And when you hear the term disciple, think Christian. In fact, uh, the word disciple is found 269 times throughout the New Testament. But the word Christian or the title Christian, is only found three times. 269, three. But here's why I say it's interchangeable. In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's from Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The disciples were first called Christians. So we should understand that the terms uh, disciple and Christian uh, are synonymous. They're, They're interchangeable with one another. See, you and I are are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we have to understand that biblical faith involves obedience. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul, "What, what do I have to do to be saved? Paul didn't say belief. He said believe. He didn't say belief. He said believe. This is an active command. Do you see the difference between belief and believe? Let's Let's take this stool, for example. This is belief, okay? That is a chair or a stool. This is believe, active term. I have enough confidence in it to actually sit on it. Does that make sense? So it's, it's an action that we're called to. It's one thing to say that I believe that this chair will support me, but it's another thing to put my money where my mouth is and to actually sit there and test it. That's the active belief that you and I are called to. A little bit of history of discipleship, especially over the course of the past 150 years. It's very interesting. Uh, With the onset of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, companies and and corporations began making and producing products at an unprecedented pace. And with this sudden and, and drastic increase in productivity came increased competition between rival corporations. And in order to stay one step ahead of the, uh, of the competition, what a company would do was they'd learn to, to quantify their success. Why? So that they could set loftier goals and create more. In other words, they started measuring their success based on how many uh, units or how many of this or that product they could make and or sell per day or per hour, or per minute. And as this mentality spread, churches too began looking for a way to quantify their success in tangible terms. 
And throughout the 20th century, the measure of a church's success was usually something like this. You know, that how many people came forward and received Christ? How many people were baptized? That was how churches in the 20th century, by and large, were measuring their success. And, and this was something that never existed prior to the 19th century. It's only been in existence for about 150 years. Or maybe, you know, if, if they're uh, quantifying by baptisms, you know, they, they, if, if somebody, let me, go, let me back up a little bit. If somebody wanted to know, prior to the 19th century, if somebody wanted to know, do I have the assurance of going to heaven someday when I die? You know what the pastor would ask them? He wouldn't ask them, did, did you say this prayer? He didn't ask them, you know, did, did, you, did you get baptized with us? He'd ask something like, are, are you growing in obedience to Jesus? Are you growing in personal holiness. Do you know what Christians looked at before the 19th century to measure their success? Personal holiness. Obedience to Jesus. That's so much more difficult to measure though, isn't it? How do you measure that? You can't quantify that. Not like you can, you know, how many beans are we putting out per hour? You can't quantify that kind of success. See, a church or denomination may say, you know, okay, we, we aim to, to baptize a uh, hundred more people next year than we did this year, and they might totally miss the mark because Jesus commanded us to make disciples, which entails baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and obedience, growth in personal holiness. So the reality is that we have to stop measuring our success the way that the world does. This is a method that we borrowed from the world. Measuring our success by numbers. Measuring our success by quantity instead of quality. We have to measure it by quality instead of quantity. At the height of, of his earthly ministry, Jesus hasn't offended a whole lot of people just yet. We know that he did. Jesus is being followed by the masses. And if you turn to Luke chapter 14 now, in verse 25, you know, we learn that there were great crowds following after him and they were fascinated by his healings. They were fascinated by the fact that he spoke with so much more authority than, than their religious leaders did. See, they were looking for a, a, a charismatic uh, leader, uh, somebody with a magnetic personality who could draw people to, uh, to himself because they were sick and tired of being occupied by the Roman Empire. And they had no love for the religious leaders of Israel. And we would think, you know, what a great opportunity to capitalize on the fact that there are all these people surrounding him and following him. Carpe diem, Jesus, do what you have to do to get all these people on board. Say what you have to say to get them to continue following you. Of, co of course, without saying anything blasphemous or heretical, of course. But what did he do? Did he try to flatter them? Did he tell them, you guys are great and God's got a plan for you and, and you can just live your best life now if you follow me? Did he try to flatter them? Did he say, okay, everybody, look, let's close our eyes and bow our heads and now with every eye closed and every head bowed, say this little prayer with me. He doesn't do that. Did he do an amazing miracle to win them over? No, no, no. He does none of the above. Instead, he decides to discuss the terms and conditions of discipleship. Now, we know what that is. When I go to the gym, I have to sign a contract. And they, they assume that I'm going to read all the fine print right. Uh, I, I'm not going to, uh, but that's, that's at my own risk. 
Because if there's something in there that I've agreed to, and I didn't know it, that, that's my problem. But Jesus, He takes this moment to, d- to discuss the terms and conditions of discipleship. Now we have to understand what it meant when somebody was invited to follow after a rabbi. It was basically an invitation to become like that rabbi, to imitate that rabbi, and to progressively just become more and more like that rabbi in terms of your, your daily routine, the way you handle yourself, etc., etc. And so what does Jesus do in this moment when he's got the attention of thousands upon thousands of people who have been following around? He lays out the terms and conditions of discipleship. In other words, he does the exact opposite thing that the Western church, the Western evangelical church, has been doing, generally speaking, for the past 150 years. Instead of trying to woo them, he warns them. He warns them of how costly and how difficult it will be to follow him. In fact, he lays out three conditions for discipleship that we would do well to take note of. And so let's take a look at what he says, starting uh, with verses 25 and 26 of Matthew, uh, Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, I'm sure he meant aunts and uncles in there too. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, before everybody starts getting bent out of shape, and I know you guys won't, but sometimes people read this and they think, what, Jesus is telling us to hate people? Come on now. Let's understand that the biblical definition of hate uh, is very different, uh, has very different implications than the way uh, we use it in our modern vernacular today. Jesus wasn't saying that we have to break the command to honor uh, our parents in order to to follow him. He's not uh, contradicting what he said about loving God and loving our neighbor uh, being the two most important commands. Uh, That's not at all what he's saying. Uh, The term hate, when you see it in the Bible, it usually means simply to love less. In other words, Jesus is telling us that the first condition of discipleship, and what do we think of when we hear the word discipleship? Christian. Disciple Christian. So the, the, the first condition of being a Christian or being a disciple is that we have a greater love for Jesus than we have for anyone or anything else. So what we see here is the first condition for discipleship is that we must love Jesus more than anything or anyone that the world has to offer. That includes other people, uh, includes those who are most dear to us, but implicit in this statement uh, is that his competition for our hearts is not just limited to people. Jesus is saying that nothing, nothing is worthy of our heart's greatest affection, desire, but Him. Isn't this the same basically as the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And let's remember that the word before there means physically in the presence of. So having any other gods in our hearts, He's saying, is unacceptable. Now we see why Jesus uses hate as a figure of speech. What he was saying is that our love for even our own family, for our own wife, for our own kids should look like hatred in comparison to the great love that we have for Jesus. So what are some things that compete for our hearts? We did a a series uh, last fall uh, called Clean uh, Clean Hands, Pure Hearts. 
uh, on idolatry and those things. So let's go through some of these. But remember that these are things which, if given a higher priority in your life, in your heart, than Jesus has, these will prevent a person from discipleship right off the bat. So let's start with family. That's what Jesus uh, tells us. And and ourselves, uh, we can't love ourselves more than we love God if we want to follow Jesus. He does say even his own life. But how about money? We're going to get to that. Jesus himself said, you can't serve God in money. How about sports? That's a big one in our culture. How about reputation? Reputation. How about, this is a delicate one. How about patriotism? And I realize that's a, that's a very delicate subject. But you can imagine, or if you, if you try to imagine the, the, the Christians in the first century singing something like, God bless the Caesars. <laughs> as they gathered together. It's unimaginable. And and as thankful for this country and for our military uh, as I am, I'm I'm as thankful as anyone, Uh, I understand also that gratitude and thankfulness for our nation has to be tempered by a primary and superior gratitude for the kingdom of God. Citizenship in God's kingdom is primary for the Christian. It's infinitely superior to our worldly and national citizenship. So remember that this world is not our home. It's very easy for patriotism to become an idol. Other things that compete for our hearts may include things like individualism, independence, self-esteem, careers, yeah, that too. It is just so, so easy for us to give preference to all of these things over Jesus. These are the things that, that are competing with Jesus for our hearts. But if you want to be a disciple, you have to understand that Jesus will not settle for second place when it comes to our hearts. If you want to be a disciple, you have to understand that with Jesus, it is everything or it's nothing. And our culture absolutely hates that. Let's be honest, we live in a, in a culture that rejects all absolutes. In fact, our culture would say, uh, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. What, how silly is that? No, there, there's no such thing as absolute truth. No, that, that is an absolute truth statement that you're making. And Jesus is speaking in terms of absolutes here, leaving no room for misunderstanding, no room for varying opinions or or interpretations on what he's saying. He's leaving no room for sitting on the fence. It's everything or it's nothing. And some, you know, someone might think uh, they don't like how exclusive Jesus is being here, but let's think about this for a second. All truth is exclusive. All truth is exclusive. If I ask you, what's five plus five? How many right answers are there? There's one. The, the answer is 10. Uh, what about if you're on the planet Mars? What's the answer? 5 plus 5 is still 10. Okay, uh, let's say that you're in, a, in, the, in the deep, deep African jungle and you've never been taught math. What's the answer now? The answer is still 10. And by saying that the answer is 10, I'm, I'm being very exclusive, aren't I? I'm saying that if you, if you think it's something other than 10, you are wrong. You are wrong. And people might not like exclusivism, but all truth is exclusive. And the unregenerate person, the Bible tells us the unregenerate person hates the truth that involves Jesus, that Jesus is laying out here. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. 
So the first condition for discipleship is to have a love for Jesus that is uncontested and unparalleled, unrivaled in our lives. For the person who responds to the, the charge, you know, with the charge that Jesus is being too demanding and asking too much, Jesus says, he cannot be my disciple. You see, following Jesus is more than just understanding who he is. Rather, it's to understand so thoroughly that we'll give up everything to stand under him. By grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus never said, hey, come on, follow me. This is so easy. Rather, he makes it clear that following him is not easy. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something for us to be casual about. He makes it clear that following him is going to require great sacrifice and great love for him on our behalf. He continues laying out the second condition for following him. Verse 27, he says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Understanding that the terms Christian and disciple are interchangeable, we could also read this as saying, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be a Christian. It's a serious, serious stuff. And while this might not make a, a whole lot of sense to us today, you know, the whole idea of, of bearing your cross, we have to understand what it would have meant to the first century culture that this was spoken to and written to. Uh, you remember, uh, Luke was writing in the, in the first century. And this was something that Jesus said prior to Calvary. So we have to ask ourselves, what would it have meant to that culture for him to say uh, that somebody has to bear their cross? Well, the cross was a symbol in that culture of extreme, agonizing suffering. The cross was a symbol of rejection and judgment by the world. The cross was a symbol of death. And as such, when, when we see a cross, we have to remember that the cross representing death was the means by which our sin was forgiven, was, was atoned. We remember that the wage of sin is death. And that when Jesus was crucified, He bore our sin and also bore the full, unadulterated wrath of God against our sin. When Jesus took up His cross, remember this also, He did it voluntarily. He did it out of His own accord. He did it out of His own will. He's God uh, he, he could have just like walked through, you know, Pilate's wall. You know, he, he could have uh, done whatever he wanted to do to get out of there if he, if he wanted to. But he took the cross up voluntarily. Why? Because that was the will of the Father. That was the will of the Father. And so he took it up on his own accord, of his own volition, knowing full well that it would mean suffering. But his love for us was so great that he considered it worth enduring. And he therefore endured it with joy, knowing that it was the cost of redeeming a people for himself. And this is what it means to bear our own cross. When the Romans executed somebody, that person would be forced to carry their own cross, which meant leaving everything in this world behind. And it's the same for us. It means that we freely and voluntarily surrender everything for the sake of having him, of having Jesus now, the, just to back up a second and make a quick clarification, that doesn't mean that you no, need to go out and uh, give away every single possession that you have uh, unless those things are preventing you from following Jesus because you love them more than you love Him. It means that we accept the rejection 
of the world, the judgment of the world, because we refuse to live by the world's standards. It means bearing the hatred of the world for the sake of desiring to please the Father, to please God, and to do His will rather than pleasing people and doing their will, or pleasing ourselves and doing our own will. Now, somebody might hear these conditions and say, wait a minute, salvation is is a gift from God, which means that it's free, but this doesn't sound very free. You're saying that there's a cost, and that seems to contradict the whole idea of it being free. Let me assure you, it, it is still free. Let's say um, that, that my, my grandmother was dying, and uh, before she died, she, she had this beautiful necklace, beautiful necklace, really ornate, and she said, I want you to have this, but what I want you to do is to put it on display in your house and make sure that it stays clean. Is it free? Yes. Are there conditions for me receiving it as a free gift? Yes. Let's say that, uh, let's say that I, I wanted to go back to college and, and earn another degree in order to take a new direction in life. And what, what's a college education these days? What, is, what does it cost? It's pretty expensive. I mean, you're talking a minimum 50000 100000 which is way, way more than, than I could possibly afford for myself. But let's say that I met somebody who heard of my desire to, to pursue a new direction and get a new degree. And uh, so this guy says, you know, I, I will pay for all of your tuition, uh, all of your room and board, all of your books, if you want to go. It's totally free for me, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's free. I, I don't owe him anything. But the moment that I accept this offer, I would be committing myself to at least four years of hard work and studying. So it's free, and yet it requires personal sacrifice. And it's the same way with following Jesus, of the person who isn't willing to make this type of commitment and this type of sacrifice. Jesus says, he cannot be my disciple. And Jesus now illustrates the point that he's trying to make. He uses sort of a a parable story format uh, to illustrate the point that he's making. Uh, We read, uh, starting with verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. We understand that before you start building something, it's always wise to calculate the cost of building beforehand rather than waiting until later because otherwise there's always the possibility that a couple years in, maybe a couple months in, who knows, maybe a couple weeks in, you'll discover that you can't really afford it. You know, this was the type of utter foolishness that almost completely crushed the entire American economy about six years ago. People had invested in all these homes that they really couldn't afford by using these special mortgages called an ARM, uh, which means adjustable rate mortgage. And maybe because it was this acronym that sounds handy, it sounds like it's going to help you, right? An ARM, I don't know. Uh, Maybe people thought that um, because it, it sounds so good and it's so tempting, they missed the fact that their mortgage rate was adjustable, 
Key word there. I, I think that shouldn't have been, uh, you know, part of the acronym. It, it should have been like an, an adjustable RM or something. Then everybody would be like, what? So when interest rates fluctuated, so did the mortgage payment. And while everybody was investing in homes and real estate that they couldn't actually afford, it all came crashing down when people's mortgage rates suddenly took a huge jump. And then they took another huge jump, and all of a sudden people started foreclosing on their homes left and right. Why? Because they hadn't really calculated the cost beforehand. They couldn't afford the homes that they were in. There was a commercial a few years ago that started out with, uh, with this guy. He's in a tattoo uh, parlor. He wants to, to express his, his undying love to a girl named Donna. And so the tattoo artist gets to work, and halfway through, the guy asks the, the tattoo artist, oh, you know, how much is this going to cost? And you know that when you're in the middle of getting a tattoo and you ask that question, it's not going to end well, right? Uh, so the tattoo artist says it's going to be 50 bucks. So the man digs through his, his pockets and digs in his wallet, and he pulls out $41. And the next shot is of this guy out on the sidewalk with Donna storming off as the camera zooms into his tattoo that says, I love Don. Always wise to calculate the cost, just like it's wise to consider and calculate the cost of building or, or buying or, or getting a tattoo beforehand. So too, Jesus is saying it is wise to consider the cost and the conditions of being a Christian before following Jesus, before committing yourself to being a disciple. He's basically telling us that we have to consider the fact that this is nothing to take lightly. It's not something that's just easy or natural. He never said that discipleship would be cheap. He never said that discipleship would be easy. And so we have to make sure that we're really, truly willing to make the necessary sacrifices if we're going to follow Him. What are those sacrifices? First of all, having an unrivaled, unparalleled love for Jesus. Number two, a willingness to lose everything if that's what it takes to gain Jesus. See, there's a major emphasis these days on having a church that's growing in in number uh you know we, we kind of glorify these uh these mega churches the, the the churches that are so uh so big that you know most people in there don't know each other and so what you see is these pastors who have mega churches they go to these conferences that are that are held for pastors of smaller churches who want to have a big church there's this emphasis on growing in number but jesus is making it abundantly clear here that he's not interested in numbers at all. He doesn't want quantity. He wants quality. He doesn't want a half-hearted commitment. He wants your whole heart. He doesn't just want part of your lives. He wants your whole life. He doesn't just want Sunday mornings. He wants Sunday morning through Sunday morning. It's all rightfully his. And that's what he wants. And yet, if you look at so much of the church today, we look exactly like the world. Where is the personal sacrifice? Where is the personal holiness? Where is the unswerving commitment to following Jesus and growing in Christ-likeness? Why are self-professing Christians divorcing at the same rate that non-Christians are divorcing? Because they don't understand that there is a cost for following Jesus. Jesus could put it back together. He can heal the most broken relationship. But they don't understand that. They don't understand that there's a commitment 
They haven't counted the cost. Why are the polls telling us that self-professing Christians are looking at pornographic websites and renting pornographic videos at the same rate that the world is? Because they don't understand that there's a cost. They haven't counted the cost. Why are the polls telling us that kids in our youth groups today are having premarital sex at the same rate as kids who aren't in youth groups? And they're, they're doing drugs and drinking at the same rate too. Why? Because we haven't told them about the high cost of calling yourself a true and legitimate Christian. But Jesus warned us that there would be tares among the wheat. In other words, there would be false Christians among the true Christians. There would be people who have not counted the cost of a legitimate, wholehearted commitment to Jesus among those who have. If you really want to be a Christian, you must have an unrivaled love for Jesus. You must have a willingness to lose everything in order to gain Him if that's what's required. And there's one more thing that Jesus includes. He continues. Verse 33. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Far from being something that's easy, and requires nothing of us. Jesus is telling the masses, and us by default because we're reading about it, that following Him is very serious business. And it, it, this is one of those things that makes me so sad when I see somebody who takes their walk with Jesus just casually. And they give intellectual assent to it. Maybe they, you know, they read their Bible, they pray, but uh, man, going to church on Sunday morning means, means getting out of bed, means making a commitment, Walking with Jesus all the time means renouncing all that they have, which basically means saying, it's not mine, it's all God's. That's the attitude that we're called to here. Jesus is not talking about just you know, giving away everything that we have, like I said earlier. That's easy. I mean, if you were an atheist, you could do that. You could give away all that you have. And in fact, uh, you know, maybe they could do that just to show, hey, you know, any, anybody could do this. But they wouldn't be following Jesus if they did, would they? No, Jesus is talking about the attitudes that we have about our stuff. He's talking about what's going on in our hearts. I mean, if you had to surrender everything that you had or that you have to follow Jesus, would you? Could you take your walk with Him that seriously? If that was really the cost, would, would you pay it? Would you pay it gladly? And, uh, you know, in our country, you know, it, it's easy to say yes to these types of questions because we're not really in danger of losing everything that we have for the sake of following Christ, at least not yet. Sometimes it feels like that's the direction we're going. I don't know what the future holds, but I know somebody who does. But what about Christians in places like North Korea? You know what happens if you're a Christian in North Korea? Labor camp for life. And people die in there. They've released drawings of somebody who, somebody who escaped, made all these drawings of what goes on in these prisons. It's serious stuff. They're as bad as the Nazis were toward their prisoners. What about people in North Korea, Christians in North Korea? See, their leader is their God. That's kind of how it works there. And so it's kind of like Rome. If you were in Rome, your God was basically Caesar. He, he, he had the most authority. 
And so if you renounce that for Jesus, you could die in Rome. Likewise, in North Korea, if you renounce their leadership, it's like blasphemy and you will pay for it. See, loving Jesus above everything else, that's the first condition. It involves our affections, our desires. Being willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus relates to personal sacrifice. And this third condition involves the attitude that we have toward our personal possessions. We live in this materialistic age where we want to consider everything mine. Mine, 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 mine. I have this, I have that. But in this materialistic age in which we're trained not just to, to keep up with the Joneses, but to pass them, this third condition may be the most difficult because we are such consumers. That's what we're raised in. We're raised to be consumers. But we have to remember that we own nothing. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We're not our own. We were bought at a high cost. We're not our own. What are we? We're we're stewards. We're stewards. We've been entrusted with things for a season, things for which we will all have to give an account for one day, including our own lives. It includes uh, our time. It includes our money. It includes our relationship. It includes our minds, our eyes, our ears, our jobs, and, and all of our possessions. It includes everything. What things do you have that you have an attitude that says, this is mine. God, back off. This is mine. That's the question that we're forced to wrestle with here. And this was a test that was given to the rich young ruler who wanted to know what he had to do in order to inherit eternal life. He claimed to have kept all the commandments from his youth. And so Jesus told him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then, and then, and then come and follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, okay, you've kept all the commandments. Put your money where your mouth is. Because I know that you haven't even kept the first commandment. Because the man's God was his stuff. His stuff, that, that's what he worships, his earthly possessions. That's what he cherished and valued above everything else and forced to choose between following Jesus or letting go of his idols. The man went away sad because he wasn't willing to meet the conditions of following Jesus. At least not yet. I think that was Mark personally that, that he was talking about there and Mark did end up coming around. But the question that Jesus is forcing us to wrestle with is this. What's ours? What among our earthly possessions are we trying to prevent God from putting his hands on? What what do we love? What possessions do we have that we love more than we love him? Jesus demands that he alone be given priority over everything that we have. Our attitude toward our possessions reveals how serious we should be uh, or how serious we are about discipleship. Rather than thinking, you know, how much of my stuff uh, will I surrender for God, we should be asking, what possessions do I have which God has entrusted me with for a season can I use to further God's kingdom on earth? Let's start with your life, your time, your spiritual gifts. 
How are you using or how can you use if you're not using? How can you use those things even more for the sake of glorifying God in your life? What about your house? What about, what about your car? Do you feel like they are rightfully yours? Or is there a way that you can be a good steward with them, using them in some way, somehow, for God's purposes in your life? John Piper wrote this. And I love to be able to attribute this to John Piper because this is one of those things that will get you in the heart if you really wrap your mind around what he's saying. John Piper wrote this. He said, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The Gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the Gospel. It's serious. There's a high cost. There are real conditions to following Jesus. But He's worth it. He's worth it. The largest pearl in the world is called the Pearl of Lao Tzu. Uh, It's also the most expensive pearl in the world. It weighs a whopping 14 pounds. I'm sure nobody's wearing this around their neck. It's oval, kind of like an old-fashioned football. You know, now they're, they're not quite as oval, but they used to be really oval. It measures nine inches across. It's five and a half inches in diameter. But the story of how it was discovered, uh, how it came into somebody's possession, is, is pretty fascinating. In 1934, pearl divers in the Philippines were, uh, were working when they realized that they were missing a member of their crew, a young boy named Etem. And the divers went looking for him. You know, they're, they're divers, so the first place they look is under the water. And sure enough, they found him dead. He drowned underwater with his hand caught in this enormous clam's mouth. And so the crew, not wanting to disrespect the dead, pried the clam out, figured out a way to get the clam out with the boy to keep the boy's body intact. And they took the corpse with his hand still clamped in the clam's mouth to the local tribe's chief who served as a local notary public to sign an affidavit which would absolve the divers from any responsibility for this boy's death. And the, this, this chief, reminded of his own days when he used to be a, a pearl diver as well, which were long past, he asked if he could have the clam in honor of the boy. And so the crew said, yeah, you can have have this giant clam. And when the chief cracked open the shell, he found the largest pearl in the world embedded in the corner of this clam's mouth. And the tribe of divers at that time was hosting an American millionaire, this guy who was just kind of an adventurer and had all kinds of money. His name was Wilburn Dowell Cobb. And when Cobb heard of what was discovered, he set off to meet with the chief and wanted to see the pearl for himself. And at first glance, he immediately recognized this pearl is the biggest pearl in in the world. I've never seen anything like this. And so he asks the chief what the chief wants for it. How much much can I pay you for this pearl? And the chief replied by saying this, I'm not a millionaire, but I defy the richest man in the world today to show me a similar pearl. 
Please excuse my words, my friend, but the satisfaction of owning the largest of all pearls is to me worth more than all money. The satisfaction that this chief derived from possessing the biggest, most prestigious pearl in the world was enough for him to surrender the opportunity to gain so much more. And Jesus teaches us that the costs and the conditions for being a disciple in his kingdom are just like that. It's worth surrendering everything in order to gain him. It's worth losing everything if we have to to gain him because only he, only he is worthy of our heart's greatest affection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we humbly come before you right now and we praise you and thank you for the call to discipleship, the high calling to be your follower, to be a Christian. And we pray, Lord, that our love for you would be great. And we pray, Lord, that that our love for you would increase. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see that you alone, that you alone are worthy of our greatest love. And Lord, when we're tempted to cling to the things of this world, we ask that you would be merciful and graceful with us, that you would help us to remember that you alone, Lord Jesus, you alone are worth clinging to. Teach us to be obedient to you. Teach us to grow in our obedience and our personal holiness, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in order that we may walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. For your glory, and in Jesus' name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.